I am really excited that for the next few minutes I can speak with Peter Smith, a very talented writer, contributing editor for O, the Oprah magazine. He has written for The New Yorker, The New York Times, a number of other publications, a novelist several times over. And uh, for our purposes today, the author of a really interesting, wonderful, entertaining book called Two of Us, the story of a father, a son, and the Beatles. In this story, we follow... Peter Smith and his son Sam, seven years old at the time that he discovers the magic of the Beatles for the first time. And uh, this journey which they have together as father and son uh, is a really intriguing one in that this mutual uh, interest in the Beatles becomes a, a new source of very powerful connection for the two of them. And, uh, and it becomes also the inspiration for this really thought-provoking book. And I'm really grateful that Peter Smith can join us for a few minutes to uh, talk about this book and the experience of writing it. Peter Smith, we welcome you Thank to you The Morning Show. Thank you very much for having me. I'd like to, be, before we find out a bit more about your son Sam and your wife and daughters and <clears throat> your family and this story specifically, uh, I'd like to ask you just about the decision that you made at some point to write a book about this, uh, after all, very, very personal story. Uh, how did you come to that decision, and how did you approach your family members, and Sam in particular, uh, in, in, in presenting to them the possibility that, that you were going to do this? Yeah. Um, it started as a trip to Liverpool that I was going to do for a travel magazine, um, a father-son Beatles pilgrimage to Liverpool. And... In the middle of thinking about this, I thought, well, you know, this has been a two-year odyssey with my son, and I think it's a little bit more than a travel piece to Liverpool to see Penny Lane and Strawberry Field, and why not see if I can trace the evolution of, um, and sort of, because for the, for us, the Beatles were like, it's sort of like Field of Dreams, but with the Beatles instead of, <laughs> instead of baseball. Mm. Um and I approached it very carefully, of course, as you would anything personal. Um, but I was also careful to, I hope, respect everybody's dignity, even a dignity of a of a seven year old or and sisters of five and three at the at the time. And uh, Sam is twelve now, and uh, you know I think he's kind of getting a kick out of it. <laughs> I was worried. I was worried, you know, because preteen you sort of don't like having a finger pointed at you, but um, but I think he's into it in a quiet way. <laughs> hmm. Very good. Yeah. In some ways, the story begins, uh, well, he is about seven years old, I think. Exactly. And uh, you say in the book, uh, you had started to realize that you and your son were having problems, slight but accumulating, mm-hmm. and nothing, nothing terribly serious, and yet let's say, maybe a bit disquieting to you. Tell us uh, about the state of affairs between you and your son, Sam, before the spell of the Beatles was cast. Sure. Um, I tend to work a little hard, so I was in my usual workaholic um, stage, and I was also noticing that I was mimicking um, the worst, I would say, the worst parts of my own upbringing while not bringing in the best parts. Um, Like many people my age, I'm 43. I had a, I'm the son of a father who was a World War II veteran, and um, they were the greatest generation. 
um, and I had a very loving relationship with my father. Um, but there was also a slight emotional distance, and I just found myself repeating the past. And I said to myself, you know, hold it, hold on a minute, you know, <laughs> you don't have to walk in lockstep with history. You can be the sort of father that you want to be. You can recreate it right now. Um, and I thought, I, I want to have a close relationship with my son, much closer than I had with my own dad. And I want to be forthcoming, and I want to be out there, and I want to be able to, to talk about things without wincing. <laughs> and um, I think with a kid, you're always looking for a way in, particularly with a, a male, because I think boys need that third thing in the room, whether it's baseball or or you know hockey or horses. I can't count the number of times when I've been doing something with my son and he will start talking about intimate things, whereas if we're just in the front seat of the car looking at each other, um, it'll be, how was your day? Great. How are you? Fine. But, but well, if you have that third thing to focus on, conversation blooms. Hmm. I, I was really taken by a couple of the a couple of the terms you used in, in trying to describe to us this state of affairs between you and Sam, a state of affairs that you wanted to be uh, more comfortable. One of the things you said at one point was that you felt like you were mummifying before his <laughs> eyes. Yes, Boris Karloff, before your very eyes. I just felt I was freezing up, and I'm from New England, so, you know, all of us who live here have a tendency to be a little on the emotionally rigid side. Hmm. Um, so I felt that was what was happening to me, and I just didn't like it in myself. I also thought it was interesting when you said that, uh, I mean, really this comes down to you just felt like you and Sam couldn't easily talk about stuff. And you said at one point, my conversations with him started off fluently enough, then stiffened, froze, and broke off. Yeah. I mean, I, I like that you <clears throat> took a little time to explain a little more clearly what you mean. I mean, I think it'd be one thing to just say, it's hard for me to talk to my son, but I'm, <laughs> I can well imagine how you attempted many, many times over and it would be this sort of, at first, okay thing that would sort of falter and then just end altogether. Yeah, yeah. And um, I also didn't really know what, what, what a father was for, really. Um, I, think, um, I think our culture treats fathers as these sort of silly, goofy, overgrown boys. And I really didn't quite know what a father brought to a kid, um, even though I knew in friends who'd grown up without fathers or whose fathers were missing, you could see, you, you could tell in their behavior that they hadn't had a father around. Hmm. Um, you say it, I hadn't the slightest idea who I was as a father. I didn't even yeah. want to talk about it. I was jammed in the hinge of two colliding generations, my dad's and my own. Yeah. I suppose you're, you're talking here about trying to figure out what kind of a father you wanted to be and then how could you be that kind of father. Exactly. And I, and I felt sort of torn between, uh, because there were so many things about my father that, you know, I, I adored. He led by, you know, he led by silent example the way so many men of his generation did. And there was so much unspoken um, in the behavior, but it led. And my own generation is very chatty and let it all hang out and let's be best friends with our son. And I didn't want to be that either, because I think that's, that's the wrong tack to take. So I felt kind of caught, as if in a closet. You know, which way, who do I want to be? 
to my son. Who do I want to be? Do I want to be best buddies, or do I want to be this sort of gloomy, saturnine fellow who goes around hoping his son <laughs> interprets his behavior wordlessly? Hmm. And in the end, I sort of found a middle ground, I think. <laughs> you describe Sam uh, at, at this point in time, almost eight years old, as um, a very... Uh, thoughtful young man, soft-spoken but meticulous with his words, uh, clearly very, very bright for his age. And you also talk about how he had some predilection for obsession, uh, not in a way that's some sort of personality disorder, but right. you say obsession seemed to keep him balanced. They yeah. gave him lift, focus, direction. Yeah. Explain a little further what you mean and the kind of obsessions which provided that to your son uh, before the Beatles came along. Well, before the Beatles, let, let me see. Um, Titanic was a huge one. He just seemed um, he just seemed to be wired in such a way that he needed this a hundred percent, twenty four seven preoccupation with a particular topic. Uh, it was the Titanic for a while. Um, we must have seen the movie about 12 times to the point where he could mouth, you know, the dialogue of the, of the doomed lovers on the ship. Um, he was surrounded by Titanic regalia, memorabilia and could tell you, you know, the length of the ship and the weight of the steerage compartment and all these sort of zany details that you just wouldn't expect to hear from a kid. And then almost overnight, um, the obsession lifted, and um, I knew that he was happiest when he was really preoccupied by something. So there came a point where my wife and I were just sort of tapping our feet, thinking, you know, what time is it? It's time for him to... We really needs a new obsession quickly. <laughs> you said at one point he seemed to be searching for a peg on which he could hang <laughs> the rest of his life. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and exactly. It, and you, you, you sort of brush over the point, but it sounds like both of you, your, your wife and you... Uh, almost simultaneously came up with this idea, let's introduce Sam and your other children, for that matter, yeah. to the Beatles. Definitely. Well, like many parents, we had we had reached the point where if we heard Baby Beluga by Rafi one more time, we were going to scream in unison. And um, <laughs> we just had enough baby ducks and baby pigs and songs about peanut butter sandwiches. And I tried to introduce um, some music of my own growing up to him before and to the girls Sam has two sisters and it just hadn't gone over um, and in retrospect I think it's because I think it's because kids tune out when they can't understand what they're hearing I mean you put on the Rolling Stones and it's under my thumbs because I'm a cat of a girl um, and it's sort of nasty and they can't understand it so they just look look out the window and with the Beatles, you can hear every single word, with the exception of, you know, a couple of songs. That's um, true, isn't it? I'd not stop to think about it, but I think you're absolutely right. Um, yeah, and plus, you know, the Beatles' song list is, a, is pretty much a menagerie of animals, which I think helps a lot. Hmm. Abbey Road was the first um, album Sam listened to, and, you know, you have an octopus four songs in, <laughs> and you have somebody bopping somebody else over the head with a silver hammer. So I think I think ultimately the obsession came down to three things. Um, a, the Beatles create this entire world like Narnia or, or Hogwarts mm. of, you know, polythene pan and piggies and raccoons and uh, sun kings and 
Eleanor Rigby's. And it's this entire universe. And plus, it's audible. They can understand what's being said. Hmm. We're speaking with Peter Smith about his book, Two of Us, The Story of a Father, a Son, and the Beatles. This uh, moment of initial epiphany for your son, Sam, came, uh, maybe you've already mentioned it, uh, at the beginning of a three-day road trip (laughs) in the car. One thing jumped out at me. You said somewhere in the middle of Connecticut, by prior arrangement, (laughs) your wife Maggie removed the cassette of Abbey Road from her purse and slid it into the car's tape player. You know, I read that, and it amused me mostly. But I also thought, you know, there's almost something just the tiniest bit creepy uh, in that this really was a, this was a very premeditated move on your parts to try to ensnare your son into uh, into into the well, Beatles. I, I, I was <laughs> sneaky, not creepy. Sneaky, sneaky. That's a much better sneaky. word. Sneaky. That's good. Um, definitely, there was a sneaky quality to it. Um, I wanted my son to love the Beatles, and I was sort of interested as to as to what how the Beatles would go over to a to a new generation of kids. I, I had no idea whether this music that was basically, you know, the soundtrack to my life and <laughs> to everybody's life, my wife's as well, how it would um, play to a seven-year-old or to a, and to his two sisters who, as I said, were then about, you know, five and four or five and three. Um, and so, yes, we had... My, my wife and I had had, had a, a, little, a sneaky little conversation in the kitchen a couple of nights before saying, you know, I think they're old enough and there's nothing... Is there anything bad in this music? No, not really. There are no real, there are no real drug references. There are no real sex references. Um, this could be... This could be good. And mm. I'm curious as to how, how he'd like it. I, I think I was inspired to a- ask that rather audacious question because... Um, I wonder how often, I mean, it clearly worked brilliantly for you, as we're going to find out as we talk, yeah. but but I wonder with with most parents and with most children if if that would be the best way to go. It, it perhaps was the best way for, for you to accomplish this, but yeah. I mean, like if, if someone wanted to turn on their seven-year-old to country western or right. opera or whatever it might be, um, I don't know if those things always can be uh, sort of scripted. No. No, but I think in retrospect that um, there is a natural affinity that the Beatles have with children or children have with the Beatles. I think it's be- A, because of the reasons I mentioned, um, but also because there are so many Beatles songs that seem almost written specifically with children in mind. They have a sort of lullaby-like quality. If it's not Yellow Submarine, it's All Together Now or Octopus's Garden. Um and there, I mean, one can't argue with the fact that in the year 2000, the Beatles were the highest-grossing band in the world, largely on the sales of their number one compilation, which I don't know about you, I didn't buy it. I already have all those songs. Hmm. Um, kids bought that, um, bought that CD. And when Sam got into the Beatles, um, he would he'd proudly go to school and say, guess, guess what I heard the other day? And, and all his classmates, you know, we're totally into the Beatles. The Beatles were all that was playing in his third, in his first grade classroom. <laughs> you mentioned the fact that you knew that Sam was hooked because 
there was silence in the car. Yes, there was silence. No crying, no request for juice boxes, no squabbling about anything. You said the back seat was as still as a valley in midsummer. Yeah, absolutely. And then uh, I think it was maybe later that night uh, that Sam sort of asked you and said, you know when you hear a song and then you can't stop thinking about it, even when you try to stop thinking about it. And that must have been the moment you realized we have made a connection here. That was the moment, but also I think it's important to point out that Ringo Starr, he was already familiar with Ringo from Thomas the, Thomas the Tank Engine. Oh, a right. PBS show he watched every morning. Um, and Ringo plays the train conductor. Um, so he knew Ringo's voice. So a part of this Beatles thing was already a little bit familiar, and he felt almost as though maybe a little bit that his his interests were meeting up with mine. Hmm. You talk about uh, Sam quizzing you about <clears throat> each of these four Beatles, uh, and he said, didn't know where to begin. It was like trying to describe string or grass or the walls, deceptively commonplace objects you realized you didn't know at all. Right. I mean, you obviously knew them extremely well, but hadn't ever been asked to talk about them in quite this way. No, I mean, as you know, you you grow up thinking of you grew up talking about the Beatles as though they're your they're your pals who live over in England. You know, Paul, John. I mean, who would you do that about today? Mm. Jay Z, Beyonce. I, I would never dream of talking that way about. Uh, no, nobody is that familiar to me, and yet you realize that. Do you know the whole story? Do you know how they met? Do you know how the Beatles met? Do you know the evolution of their career? And I realized I really sort of didn't. Mm. One thing that was curious to me, maybe to you as well, is the fact that uh, Sam seemed very, very interested in uh, not only the Beatles and what they did and accomplished, but also in how and why and when they broke up. Uh, Why do you think that intrigued him so much? I think because at the time we were living in New York and he had a lot of friends who, and he was just beginning to discover the uncomfortable fact that a lot of his friends were from were children of divorce and that their parents had broken up and i'm not sure about him but when i was that age um there were the word divorce was probably one of the scariest words in my head i i I, it just petrified me and my guess is or i'm extrapolating that in the same way he sort of figured that if the beatles could break up well so could our family Hmm. and um and I, and I ended up explaining to him that the reasons why the Beatles broke up and um, that, no, it wasn't going to happen to us. We're speaking with Peter Smith. The book is Two of Us, the story of a father, a son, and the Beatles. Uh, you talk about how you yourself, uh, as, a, as a youngster, probably about the same age as Sam was at the time, uh, you, you bought the Beatles' rubbers, uh, yeah, rubber sole, uh-huh. and you said there was something illicitly thrilling about the fact that I, a seven-year-old, was listening to the Beatles in totally. the first place. <laughs> totally. <laughs> totally. And I remember, I have one of these memories of being seven and hearing the song uh, Day Tripper with that bass line, and hoping that people coming into the room watching me listen to the song would somehow think that I was as cool as that baseline was. <laughs> that they would mistake this, you know, big, overweight, clunky kid for somehow, you know, Joe Cool. And that 
that somehow um, that somehow the Beatles were me. That I just hoped people would confuse me for the Beatles and think that I was as cool as the Beatles. But I think for I think definitely um, for Sam and I think it was a couple of, it was a couple of nights after the Abbey Road car ride we introduced him we we screened a hard day's night we rented it from a video store and i think to see to see how people reacted to the beatles was one of the most intriguing things for him um to see adults crying or so excited um that they just couldn't they could barely contain themselves mm. was sort of thrilling because you know when when does a 7 year old see adults losing control not very much um, and I think, um, just like with me at age seven, their their fame um, was very intriguing. I mean, there are celebrities nowadays who who complain about famous, but as George Harrison said once, slightly contemptuously, <laughs> hmm. uh, fame is having four hundred thousand people outside your hotel room. Um, fame is not, you know, ten photographers in the Los Angeles airport when you alight from your plane. It's 400 and 500,000 people calling your name. I mean, that's fame. Wow. <laughs> there are a couple of moments in the book that really um, brought back memories for me. One of them is the fact that uh, I remember so vividly as a youngster, maybe a, a, at 10 or 11, I remember being fascinated by the album cover for Sgt. Pepper's uh, Lonely Hearts Club Band. Oh, yeah. And, and, and listening to the album because the cover intrigued me so much. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, you talk about spending a few minutes with Sam looking carefully at uh, mm-hmm. all the crazy things that are yeah. on, on that uh, amazing cover. Yes. Oh, it's a wild cover. Um, yes, and uh, I didn't want to give him you know, a trivia list, you know, that's Shirley Temple, famous star, there's Carl Jung. Um, I think that his, his interest in the Beatles was helped along um, with that cover in particular when he, when I explained to him the, uh, the hoax in the mid sixties that Paul McCartney um, was supposedly, had supposedly died in a car accident. The so-called Paul is dead, um, controversy. Yes. And that there were clues on every cover. And for him, it was, you know, it was a blast. I, I, to me, it's, I mean, it scared, it, it scared the heck out of me as a kid. It really scared me. In fact, a teeny little part of me still believes that Paul is dead today. But for him, it was like a, it was like a, a Where's Waldo hunt mm. for Beatles clues. Um, I think we should just take a second and, and fill in the blanks for yeah. Those those few listeners that might not really know what we're talking about, just tell us real briefly about the essential rumor, and uh, and then and then these uh, clues that we're talking about. Okay, um, in about 1966, as a as a joke, apparently, uh, a newspaper in the, somewhere in the Midwest, I think it was in Michigan, um, uh, published an article saying that Paul McCartney had been killed in a car crash. Uh, after leaving Abbey Road Studios one night on a rain a rainy night after quarreling with John, and that the Beatles had replaced him with an imposter who looked like him and sounded like him, and that for some reason the Beatles did not want to admit this publicly, but that they'd, they'd left clues on album covers and inside songs 
and that if you were a really good detective, you could piece it all together. And the clues ranged from such things as on the back of Sergeant Pepper, George Harrison pointing at the line Wednesday morning at nine o'clock when the day begins. And that was supposed to be the time when Paul had died to, you know, ghostly shadows on Magical Mystery Tour to, um, I don't know, there, there are about 60 or 70 clues, some of which are absolutely preposterous and some of which you just sort of wonder, hmm, the Beatles did this on purpose for PR. You, you just don't know, and the Beatles never satisfactorily explained um, what, what exactly was going on. Hmm. It was an in, in, intriguing exchange with Sam because you could just kind of tell Sam thought the whole thing was so ridiculous and I preposterous. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, no, 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 and it sort of helped me exercise my childhood <laughs> paranoia. That, because as a kid, I thought, oh my God, he really is dead. And if Paul is dead, uh, what else? What else is the world keeping from me? Right. What What can I believe? What can I believe anymore? Um, it really had an effect on me as a kid, but I was really glad um, Sam gave it no credence whatsoever. But I think it. I think having sort of a fake death um, led us to the topic of of real death, which you know, which is John Lennon's assassination, which is George Harrison, his favorite Beatle, uh, dying, sort of in the middle of his of his Beatles love, which was hard for him, very hard for him, hard for all of us. I was very moved by the moment in the book when you talked about your father calling you uh, just after John Lennon was murdered. Yeah. And, um, and at the end of, of, a, of otherwise sort of normal conversation for the two of you, he expressed regret that, that this had happened to John Lennon. It reminded me of a phone call I got from my dad the night that JFK Jr., died uh and and my father is really not one to do that very often but he when they flashed the picture of jfk jr and he noticed that he was born in 1960 the same Uh, year that i was born yep and somehow he was concerned about what i might be thinking and feeling and picked up the phone and called and i i thought this exchange between you and your father's such a similar thing it's it's amazing uh, when life can surprise us with moments of tenderness that we don't see coming. Yeah, yes, yes. And it was a real desire to to reach out to something he didn't quite understand because, you know, he was, gosh, how old would he have been? He would have been 55 or 60 almost. And But he knew what effect the Beatles had had on me and everybody growing up. And he didn't quite get it, but I think for him it was the equivalent of of Glenn Miller going down in a plane. (laughs) Hmm. We're speaking with Peter Smith. His book is Two of Us, the story of a father, a son, and the Beatles. I love the moment when you say that one of the ways in which Sam tried to live out this burning interest in in the Beatles was at the piano. You said uh, uh, he'd been taking lessons uh, for the past year, but it usually took a forklift and cable plow to get him to practice. But not that night. He sat down and started... uh, uh, playing Beatles songs and just sort of figuring them out on his own. Yeah. What yeah. a great moment for, for him and for all of you. Oh, it was very cool. And, it, and, it, and it, 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 it was kind of proof that, yes, there is life after Bella Bartok. 
and you can ultimately play some songs that you actually like on the piano. And all this practicing does have a destination, I promise. Now, now he's playing Gershwin and, and, and other stuff and, you know, Nirvana songs on the piano. So um, practicing does does work out and hmm. can end up playing the things that you like. You say that Sam uh, developed an unquenchable hunger for information. And then beyond that, um, there was another thing the Beatles had given him, opinions yes. and a slowly growing fearlessness about expressing them. Yes, definitely. Definitely. Give us a couple of examples. Well, the example I cited in the book, which is which is a little mean, but I cited it anyway, um, which is he'd read somewhere that Yoko Ono feuding with Paul McCartney over some song credit or something had said that Paul McCartney was the Salieri to John's Mozart. And I remember Sam one night saying to me, if anybody is Salieri, it's <laughs> Yoko Ono. <laughs> um, which is a little unkind, but um, from, a, from a boy who really kept his opinions to himself, um, about most things, very very shy, um, gentle, very gentle kid. Um, I just sort of very slowly watched his confidence growing as his knowledge about the world increased, and um, it, 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 I I just saw him almost blooming in this fearless way that you want for your you want for your kids. You also said that the Beatles led us so effortlessly to other subjects. Oh, absolutely. I mean, they went through everything that most guys go through. Um, we were able to talk about male friendship and what happens What happens to a group of guys when one of the guys falls in love. I mean, what, what happens to male friendships when guys get married? I mean, that's a big topic. Um, death, marriage, uh, children... The difference between John and Paul, you know, they're painted so starkly different. You know, John is the real the real artist, and Paul is sort of the happy-go-lucky, slightly more lightweight one. And in fact, the truth is much more complex than that. Um, you know, it was John who wrote In My Life, which is, you know, one of the tenderest Beatles songs there is. And it was Paul who wrote um, Helter Skelter. Uh, so I wanted him to see that even though the Beatles are sort of portrayed as these black and white, almost fairy tale characters, um, that people are very complicated. And, yeah, the um, truth is not that tidy. Truth is not that tidy, and the most interesting people you know are going to be the most contradictory. <laughs> mm. You you entertain us so much in the chapter called Beatles for Sale when you tell us the story of of you and Sam um, visiting a big Beatles event, the New York, New Jersey Beatles Fest. Yeah. Um, uh, give us our list. Give our listeners some sense of what this event was like and uh, why it turned into such a bust for for you and Sam. Yeah, it didn't work out for Sam. It, it's it's hard taking us. Uh, I think he was around eight by then, and I'd signed up for tickets for a three day event. You know, which is seventy-two hours in a hotel in New Jersey, um, and we got there, and I, these these things are. I mean, it's kind of amazing in the first place that there is a Beatles fest. I mean, you know, thirty-four years after they broke up, 
that these events take place three times a year and that they're attended by about 5,000 people per weekend. But it was just the wrong sort of place to take an eight-year-old to, even one who loved the Beatles. Um, a lot of people who were visiting the Beatles Fest were staying at the hotel, so there was this sort of slightly beery, um, hot-doggy, fraternal fraternity feeling to it all. Um, and we got there, and there was, you know, everything for sale, ranging from bootlegs to Beatles underwear and Beatles neckties and Beatles clocks and, you know, Beatles coins statuary with the word imagine on it there's beatles talent show there were beatles puppet shows there was beatles fiction for sale where writers write short stories in which the beatles figure prominently um and i just found it all a little surreal and um i think sam was a little bit overwhelmed and about two hours <laughs> into it he um basically signaled to me we got to get out of here and I saw that the bus didn't leave for another 13 hours. So <laughs> thank God I found a commuter bus schedule and we were able to get back to New York within about an hour and a half. But um, no, it was a nice try. But I think that weekend he found out what real, I mean, raw Beatles fans were like. Hmm. I mean, people who just won't let it go. I also found so interesting your uh, your account of of wanting to explore this world of the boots, as some people call them, uh -huh. bootleg recordings, pirate yeah. recordings. Um, and through the Internet, you eventually connect with a woman uh -huh. who kind of deals in bootleg recordings, and you actually yeah. arranged a rendezvous with her. Just explain a little bit about that. That's a really fascinating little story. <laughs> well, um, when the Beatles, a few years ago, the Beatles released um, three CDs called the, An the Anthology Series, which were alternate versions of songs that you know you and I and everybody else know knows by heart, and they were so intriguing because, as I say, you know these songs so perfectly, but to hear rehearsal versions of them or alternate versions, it's sort of revelatory because it just made you realize that you know the Beatles did not get it right the first time. That like most artists, you practice and practice and rehearse and struggle and try this out, and that doesn't work. And ultimately, you create a song. So that had whetted, the, whetted my appetite and Sam's, and I just found out one night that the Beatles' bootleg universe is huge, that there are, you know, thousands of illegal bootlegs taken from recording sessions and um, secretly taped by engineers and um, things smuggled out of Abbey Road. And I was just wondering how I could get some of these things, because we kind of exhausted the um, the authorized Beatles records and CDs by then, and so I googled Beatles bootlegs, and I actually ultimately got in touch with a woman, and I bought five bootlegs from her, and I gave them to them for Christmas. I sort of stuffed them in a stocking, um, and they're just... They're just amazing. I mean, it's the, the entire Let It Be rehearsal on the rooftop, the Beatles' last concert. There, there are bootlegs with titles like, you know, the, the Beatles Live in Japan, the Beatles Live in Washington, the Beatles at Candlestick Park. Um, things I had no idea existed. But, of course, it is a huge industry out there. And well, most, most of the sound quality is not very good. But, of um, course. But these are, of course, such interesting 
recordings that you, you just cannot access uh, any other way. Exactly. And it's so intriguing that this woman with whom you had this uh, encounter then in a train station or a bus right, station or someplace, <laughs> uh, she seemed so intrigued by the fact that you wanted to buy these recordings not so much for yourself as for your young son. Yeah. And uh, it, it's very touching, her her reaction to that. Well, she well she got I think very emotional, and so did I. It was just something sort of wonderful that um, a seven-year-old or an eight-year-old, however old he was then, loved the Beatles, and it was kind of confirmation that her instincts were right that this was the best band in the world, and it was going to live. This band was just going to go on forever and ever. Because if there are seven-year-old, eight-year-old boys in the world that are caught up in them. them. Who love them and listen to them and wanted more, 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 more. (laughs) Right. Of course, that does not go on forever. And interestingly enough, um, you see things uh, kind of spinning downward for Sam and the Beatles. Uh, At one point, uh, distractedness, you say it started to harden into indifference during a trip which you made as a family to Liverpool to visit where where the Beatles came from. Um, we don't have very much time, I'm afraid, but give okay. us some sense of what the tri- did the trip cause that, or was it was it just sort of a coincidence no, that at I, this great moment that's when things began to wind down for Sam just naturally? I think he had peaked pretty much, and I'd seen it before with the Titanic, so I knew there came a a, a peak point. And yes, he and I flew to London and went to Abbey Road, and then we took the train to Liverpool. And by then, I think he was kind of humoring me. But I will say that by the time we reached Liverpool and his interest seemed to have turned to, of all things, World War II, which was interesting since Liverpool was, is, was the second most bombed city in, um, in England, next to London, um, that we, we, we kind of didn't need the Beatles anymore. We were having such a, we were having such a blast as kind of two guys traveling together. Hmm. Two slobs in, in a hotel room <laughs> eating potato chips. You said the distance between us was long gone. It was, it was long gone, and so it was almost sort of more a curiosity to be in Liverpool and to see Abby, and to see Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields than it was some heightened <laughs> obsessive hunt for the Beatles' beginnings. It was, just, it was just sort of a lark more than anything. I love how you say it was done. It. It was, uh, like he was saying, two years of childhood Beatlemania. It sounded like an infection <laughs> was now trickling to an end. <laughs> Maybe an infection, but a very happy one. Yes. Intriguing to me, um, your book ends with um, Sam in front of the television set beckoning you into the living room because he's watching one of his favorite programs and mine, SpongeBob and SquarePants. Mine. Oh, and now yours. Oh, so. I love it. I love it. I love it. So Sam has uh, <laughs> Sam has opened a few doors to you as well. I love SpongeBob. Yeah, um, I ended the book that way because he beckoned me in almost as if to say, in the same way I had beckoned my father in as a kid, almost as if to say, you know, this is my this is my generation's um, product, and it says something about me that I like it, and I want you to watch it, and by watching it or listening to it, you can learn something about me. And that's just what I did with the Beatles when I was a kid to my own father. Hmm. And when I came into the living room and he wanted me to watch SpongeBob, I sat and I just, I mean, I'm a fanatic now. Hmm. Does Sam like the book? Yeah, he really likes the book. (laughs) 
I must, I must, I say that with with honesty. He read it. I don't think he was embarrassed by it at all, and I think he's kind of, I think he's kind of into it. Yeah. You know, to my surprise, because I didn't want to, I didn't want to embarrass him as a as a preteen, which he is now. Right. Well, I I should think almost a higher priority than getting a good review in USA Today mm-hmm. is uh, getting a good review from uh, the, the young man uh, who figures so prominently in these pages. Oh, absolutely. And, and he's, um, he's really, he's, he's still a wonderful, he's a wonderful kid. I, re- I, just, I just adore that boy. <laughs> the book is Two of Us, The Story of a Father, a Son, and the Beatles by uh, Peter Smith. The book is published by Houghton Mifflin, and it is a delight from start to finish. Peter Smith, a great pleasure to speak with you uh, uh, on the morning show, and I congratulate you on a really wonderful book. Thank you so much for having me.